0: Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Thank you. I mean, They always have a big mouth. They always talk a lot. So <laughs> it happened before it's gonna
2: happen again.
0: Our first guest grew up in a famous tennis playing family and even has a national mother-son doubles title to show for it. Living in Dallas, Texas, he would go on to be a great player in his own right as he'd play college tennis for Tulane University. I'd first meet him as an opponent across the net from each other as we played 13 years ago in the final of a GLTA event in Dallas. I didn't win that match, but I do remember thinking two things. One, wow, this guy is so nice. And two, it's okay, John. He's James Blake's brother. Please welcome James Blake's brother. It's my friend, Chris Walker. Chris, how you doing? I'm doing fine, John. How about yourself? It's so good to Zoom see you. Oh, that's so Dallas of you. That was, I, <laughs> I heard the twang right away. I like it. <laughs> it's been a long time, Chris. You know, I haven't it, seen you since we shook hands in that match.
1: It has. Yes. I, I do remember uh, the one thing I remember about that match was when I went over to introduce myself to you and you said, uh, you do not need to introduce yourself. <laughs> you are a legend. Oh, and wow. uh, so thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. I remember that. 13 years later, so thank you. You
0: are a legend, it was so fun playing you, absolutely. I mean, we have two legends today, so it's gonna be fun. Are you still playing, Chris?
1: I do play, yes. That was actually the last singles match I ever played with when I beat you. That was the <laughs> last one, and I figured then I could retire. Okay, but good. no, that was the last GLTA singles match I played. Um, I still do play a little bit, but not nearly as much as I used to, no. Well, maybe doubles one day.
0: Actually, yeah. s- strike that, because I think you have much better options than me. Let's bring out your brother. That's a much better option. (laughs) Our player guest today needs no introduction, but with a career so legendary, you almost have to say it out loud to believe what he was able to accomplish. Born in Yonkers, New York, he started his career with a wild card into qualifying at the 1997 US Open. But it wouldn't take long before he'd be playing night matches on Arthur Ashe Stadium in front of thousands of fans. His 2005 7 6 in the fifth quarterfinal match against legend. Andre Agassi is still regarded as one of the best Grand Slam quarterfinals from the past 20 years. He'd go on to make two more Grand Slam quarterfinals in his career as well as win 10 ATP singles titles and make a memorable run to the 2006 year-ending championships in Shanghai. After a near-career-ending neck injury on a practice court in Rome in 2004, he would famously battle back to once again beat the best in the world, and he'd be recognized as the 2005 ATP Comeback Player of the Year. His wins are a who's who of current and former Hall of Famers like Nadal, Agassi, and Hewitt. He'd skyrocket to four in the world, and at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, he would stun then-world number one Roger Federer to earn his first victory over a player that sat atop the ATP rankings. After over a decade of beating the world's best, he would befittingly play his final match in another classic five-set rumble at the 2013 US Open. But luckily for the tennis world, he stayed entrenched in the sport he grew up playing with his family, now most notably as a premier analyst for ESPN and as the tournament director for one of the most prestigious events in the world, the Miami Open. He went to Harvard, he was named in People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive issue, he's a New York Times best-selling author, and yeah, he's even besties with John Mayer. Our guest today, Is the fantastic
2: James Blake?
0: James, what's up?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not not allowed. It's an impressive uh, introduction. Thank you for all of that. We're gonna run out of time.
0: (laughs) I know. Oh well. I mean, you did a lot, so we better get right into it. I mean, this is gonna. This is a family affair today. I love it. I do want to start the show though by saying how impressed I was at the Miami Open this year. I know this will sound kind of like I'm bringing an apple to a teacher on the first day of school a little bit, but um, (laughs) it was my very first COVID-era tournament as a fan, really well done. Were you happy with how the team was able to pull it together?
2: Yeah, I mean it was one of those situations where you're just trying to make the best of a difficult situation, and we definitely felt like we did that because we really didn't we didn't know what to expect. Like I said, it's your first uh, event in the COVID era, and for for us, it was our first time putting on an event in the COVID era where you have to, you know, between day session and night session, you have to completely sanitize everything. If a fan has a ticket for a day and night, you still have to have them leave, sanitize everything, have them come back. You got to make sure you're still in all the protocols with the mask. I ended up staying in the bubble, so the players were in the bubble, and we needed someone that was there as well in the bubble with them so you got bubble life where you're just going from the hotel to the courts the hotel to the courts that's it so it was just a little difficult and a little different and you got to figure out how to make that work and you know we we had the players were excited the players actually were really happy that there was no center court because they had the whole field the whole miami dolphins field to themselves to play to run to play set up soccer games and cornhole and spike ball and do everything they wanted to do there so I don't know if they're going to let us put the stadium court back next year, but I think we might have to, if we can get 14,000 fans in there.
0: <laughs> well, you did it. I mean, thank you. I can't wait for the open this year. I'm so excited to see some live tennis again, no fans during the qualifying rounds, but hopefully we keep taking care of ourselves and we'll be able to see some rowdy New York tennis again. Kudos again, James, for pulling off Miami. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Appreciate that. I wanna back up for one second to your introduction because I really could have kept going, but I left a lot out because you have this amazing foundation, which we're gonna talk about in a bit. You're still playing tournaments on the ATB champions tour. And the one thing that probably keeps you the busiest, you have two kids. So there's that. I mean, that's a lot of work.
2: Yeah, that does keep me the busiest. And uh I try to play like, you know, a little bit of golf here and there. And I've got buddies around here that that play a ton and they'll ask me, okay, when can you play? Can you do this? Can you play? And so many times when I'm saying, no, like, man, I thought you were retired. You're supposed to be, you're, they, they joke that I'm the busiest retired person ever. So I feel like I am just as busy now as when I was playing, but I enjoy, I'd say almost all of it. 90, 95 to 99% of this stuff that I'm doing since I've been retired, I really enjoy. So that makes it, uh, that makes it so it's not really like work. I do yeah. still feel retired because I, 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 any, almost any of the things I can, say no to if I want, if I really want to. Well, except for the parenting stuff. But my wife will let me say no to that. Uh, but I really enjoy a lot of it.
0: I'm sure you say no to your kids a lot. I mean, that's
2: that's part of being a dad, though, right? They Have, call me of them... no. Yeah, yeah. I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely the bad guy plenty of times.
0: <laughs> Have they played tennis? Do they pick up the racket or no? Is that just not cool?
2: They play a little. Um, but right now, the way my wife and I absolutely love it and want it is they do a little bit of everything. We're going over a lot of the stuff that my older daughter plays soccer, uh flag football, tennis, piano. Um the little one is in going to be in starting a little play soon and does soccer and flag football as well and I I love the fact that they do anything and everything and as they get older they'll figure out what they like the most and if that's tennis, great. Obviously I got plenty of resources to help them in that world and if it's not tennis, great as well. If they're soccer, you know, that's um I'll learn plenty plenty more about soccer if that's the case and I'll try to be uh just the the supportive parent and not be the coach.
0: That's right. That's right. Are they big readers? Because I do know a certain somebody that has their own autobiography. <laughs> they um, which I happens to be right it. here. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just
2: saying. <laughs> they joked about that. They said, when is it, when is it appropriate that we can read that book? And I, I think it's getting pretty soon. I mean, I, I'll have to reread it to make sure there's nothing, uh, nothing too bad about me in, the, in that. But my oldest daughter's nine, and I think pretty close to her being able to to read that book.
0: So I'm thinking Uncle Chris kind of yeah. gives them a nice Christmas present this year. Maybe that's what you. Maybe I'm just <laughs> helping you out there, Chris. Maybe we. <laughs> They're gonna be uh, like, no. Why did I get the book for Christmas? That's not you know, yeah. that's not what I wanted. But you know, oh well. <laughs> well, yeah. it's great to have you both here today. I'm glad I'm facilitating some brotherly love via Zoom. But the yeah. good news is we're gonna be together for an hour. But unfortunately, we're gonna have to take a quick pause on this epic family reunion because we have to jump right into things today because we have so much to talk about. And with the US Open upon us, I can't wait to deep dive into James's legendary career. So let's start the pod today with my favorite way to start any service game. 15 Love. And that's 15 Love. It's a super simple game. I'm gonna throw 15 questions at you, James. And you just respond as quickly as you start hitting forehand winners in matches. Okay.
2: <laughs> All right. <laughs> Here
0: we go. It's one number one. Name the first professional match you remember watching live or on television?
2: On television, it was Matt's V. Lander and Yvonne Lendl in okay. the US Open live. It was um, a friend of mine, uh, Mark Kaplan, who was working with uh, my coach at the time. I actually don't remember who he was playing, but it was in the qualifying of Newport.
0: Awesome. All right, Chris, do you remember? Do you remember yours? You got to throw back first, a little further.
2: Gosh, the first match I ever played, I'm,
1: the first match I ever watched, honestly, was during the 1971 U.S. Open when Chris Everett had her debut. That's how far back I go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there we go. I see it. Now we're, the, the listeners are getting a good little glimpse into the family <laughs> dynamic. James, a fan of yours and a great supporter of the show in Malaysia, Asmad Anwardin, wanted to know who your tennis idols were growing
2: up. Uh, so I the biggest one was Jim Courier. He's uh, someone that was so well known for his hard work and, and his work ethic. He outworked all of his opponents. So I love that. Um, I love that mentality. So him and Stefan Edberg, I always appreciated for his something I couldn't do, which was actually behave on the court and the have calmness. Yeah. That, yeah. That calm attitude on the court.
0: I love that you're trying to channel some Edberg. All right. Good to know. <laughs> I have to rewatch some matches now. All right. Number two, we're going to talk later in the show about the biggest win of your career, which Coincidentally happened at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. But since you and I are both former Olympians, you played, I watched. So it's kind of the same thing, right? Okay. <laughs> Can you share a great memory you have outside of tennis from the Olympics?
2: Yeah. Well, I'll I give you a couple. One was going to watch Jarko Niemannen, who was a great player from Finland. Um, his wife played badminton. So we went and uh we got on the bus together and went and watched her uh while she awesome. played. So that was pretty cool to, to be able to watch badminton. I got to know the the cycling team pretty well as well. And um when I won against uh against Roger, I had a call from the dream team then, the the basketball team, and Kobe was on it. And obviously there's great players that were yeah. that were calling me. And um one of their moms had actually gone to the match and watched, and she's the one that called back. And it was Daron Williams. His mom watched. And called him and said hey you guys better call him uh after that so that was a pretty cool experience to have a phone call from the dream team that's awesome did you stay in the village or or did you stay in the village yeah the first night i stayed in the hotel and i didn't want to feel like that because i was like that's this is the same as any other tournament i want to go into the village so i went into the village and stayed with uh robbie Ginepri and the brian brothers
0: oh i bet you're just so excited watching this olympics we're going to talk about it in a bit but you have a lot of diehard fans that did ask this question they wanted to talk about that shot from the Olympic semifinal Mitch Adams in Austin, Texas. He wrote, did you ever chat with Fernando after that match about that controversial point? Or were you okay with just letting it go?
2: No, I, I, uh, I'd say somewhere in between there. I wasn't thrilled about it. And the main thing was that it was on the Olympic stage. If that happens at a U.S. open and, uh, it's not as big a deal, but in the, the Olympics where you're supposed to be dealing with sportsmanship and fair play, I didn't, didn't really like the way that went down. So I said, congratulations after the match. And I don't think we've said, I don't think we've spoken to each other since then.
0: Forgive, but not forget. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Number three, James, you get one loss, singles or doubles from your career to turn into a win instead. Which do you pick? I was going to say, you can't pick the Olympic semifinal, but Hey, a free game. You know, if that's it. Um,
2: it. Yeah. I don't know if it's that one or that, that quarterfinals with Andre, maybe that was coming back from so much in 2004 that to, for me to make the semis would have been quite a story. And then playing my buddy, Robbie Ginepri in the semis, who knows what would have happened. We had a uh, close matchups at that time to just either one of us going to the slaughter. That was Roger Federer at that time in the finals, but still would have been, would have been fun for me to experience a, a U.S. open semi or final.
0: For sure. Good one. All right. Number four. So the next two questions, we're going to stick with red, white, and blue and talk about your years representing the U S when you played mm-hmm. in the Hopman cup. Yeah. James, not sure if you know this, but you have the most wins, 23 <laughs> by any American male or female, in the history of the Hotman Cup. Serena has 21. Wow. And anyone listening today knows that I love the Hotman Cup. It was my very favorite event to watch every year. We don't have enough mixed doubles teams, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm especially
1: it's, gone. Yeah,
0: exactly. Especially when the top players are playing. So I'm just throwing this out there before mm-hmm. Indian Wells does it, but I'm I'm thinking Miami Open. 2022 i'm just saying all
2: right a mixed doubles event mixed doubles. that would be great i would love to do that i'd love to be able to do that all right. we'll see we'll see what
0: happens i mean i think it's a great idea just uh just throwing it out there all right james as the 2003 and 2004 hotman cup champion and someone that's played doubles with two of the all-time greats in both serena and Lindsay, i wonder what's your favorite hotman cup memory
2: Oh man, you're gonna get me in trouble. You just said I played with two of the all-time greats, so playing with Serena and playing with Lindsay were both uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah. So I, I'd say, I mean, I, I, I got to pick one from each of those. So okay, from great. Sajuna, I love it. It I was, it. it was. Um, I was playing Leighton, and he was number one in the world at the time. And she just came into my locker room. You know, it's men and women separate locker room. She didn't care. She came into my locker room and basically got in my face, said, "You are going to kick his butt." You're going out there and you're going to beat him right in my face. And I just, I was like, man, she is, she's just built different. She's the Michael (laughs) Jordan. She's got that in her. And I ended up going out and winning and she came in and just, you know, you kicked his ass, you know, she was was pumped up. So that was the one with her. And then with Lindsay, the next year I'm playing with Lindsay. And she tells me beforehand, I don't know her very well at this point. Um, I'm still pretty young in my career. And she tells me beforehand before we get on the first time to play mixed double check, Oh, I want you to kind of take over a little bit. I'm not really. I don't do so well in doubles, so I want you to take over. I was like, okay, great, no problem. Then they start doing the introductions and they do mine first and then her and they say, okay, and Australian open doubles champion, former number one in the world in doubles. And I actually (laughs) caught the ball and I looked at her and I said, did you just tell me you aren't good at doubles? And she's like, oh, that that was just, that was before that, that doesn't really count. What are you talking about? You're leading this. You're the captain of this team now. You're taking over everything.
0: Great ones. Those are hilarious. All right. So my fifth question, obviously, is if you had your choice to play Hopman Cup just one more time with any other American besides those two, okay. who would you pick? Current or retired? Anybody in history?
2: I think I'd take Venus. You know, she's a ton of fun. I got to know the Williams sisters really well. And I think she's at times, I don't know if we appreciate her enough until maybe until she's retired, because obviously at times she's overshadowed by her sister, but I'm a seven time grand slam champion playing into her forties. Pretty amazing. And started out at 15 years old on tour. Just incredible. So I'd love to play with her too.
0: Yeah. Legends only in that tournament. Yeah. Right? That's re- <laughs> All right. Number six is questions actually for you, Chris. Chris, I think it's safe to say people listening feel like they've known your brother for years. But as someone that actually has known your brother for years, how would you describe James off-court to someone that's never met him?
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Honestly, he is totally legitimately the nicest guy I know. Uh Um, You know, I I, I was very (laughs) concerned that fame might change him. But it really didn't. When when I went and I I wrote you, John, about going to see his first final up in Memphis. And, um, you know, one of the things that sticks with me to this day is when James was speaking to the crowd afterwards, he acknowledged me to the crowd. Um, I have so many people I would like to thank. I would like to thank my brother, Chris, and he also acknowledged my husband, Ken, too. I'd like wow. to thank my brother, Chris, and Ken for coming to see me. That was really special. That, frankly, just took me by surprise. And there was a kid that was sitting next to me. And, you know, obviously, when you look at James and I, you, you don't know that we're brothers. And, you know, the kid looked at me and said, you're the brother? And I said, I am, yeah. Uh, But, you know, James is really the nice guy that you think he is in the press. He is a legit great person. Oh, boy. I've told you that to your face, so.
0: Bringing things (laughs) together today. That's what we're doing today, too. It's going to be a fun hour. We're just getting started. I mean, I'm assuming you agree with that assessment, then, right? You're like, absolutely. I'm very cool.
2: I'm, <laughs> no, no, <I'm... laughs> definitely not. I appreciate it, and that's that's brotherly love. So I appreciate it, and uh, I was truthful when I said thank you because that was that was one of the first torrents when uh, you know Chris travel, Chris and Ken traveled to come see me there. Yeah, and it wasn't just like it was around the corner. So I was really appreciative. I, at that point I was so young in my career. I thought you know I cared about my wins. I couldn't realize and. I couldn't comprehend that Chris really cared like how I did. And so that was, that was so cool for me to see that that at the beginning of my career, that other people and my family was, was yeah. caring about how I did.
0: Ah, oh, well, since we're on the sentimental charge, I'm always going to skip ahead to this one, but I, I think it's befitting right now. Chris, I was going to ask you, obviously your brother was able to achieve a lot in his career. So I wondered what your proudest moment of James was either on the court or off court or it could be whatever. I mean, I know we're, that was a big moment for you too watching that final, but was there any other moment, maybe a moment you weren't there that you said, you know what, that's exactly who he is. He's awesome.
1: James has always had the ability to say the right thing which is kind of uncanny because our mother always has the ability to say the wrong thing. (laughs) And, um, you know, when, um, you know, there was that incident with Hewitt back at the U.S. Open a few years ago and people tried to make an issue of it. And James said, we talked, it's over, let's move on. And I thought that was just really the, right thing to do you know he always makes me proud um you know the the same thing with that um incident in new york where he was taken down by the cop i mean you know there's no question that james was upset about it but what you saw in the press was he maintained his composure and i I don't think i could have done that No, no,
0: you're right. James has a legacy of class. And I think that's why so many fans are even listening right now. I mean, there'll be 1000s of people that are listening to this. And I think through all the obstacles and injustice you've had to face throughout your life, you've always found a way to educate people and find ways to inspire and whether you're on the court or off the court, you've maintained that coolness. So thank you. but speaking of coolness, I sorry, <laughs> I have to kind of segue here. But your coolness knows no bounds, James Blake. As I mentioned earlier, John Mayer is a good friend of yours and you actually went to yeah. school with him and you grew up with him. So what's your favorite John Mayer song? I'm throwing you
2: under a bus. Oh man. Um, Why Georgia Why might okay. be my favorite. Yeah. I, I that whole album, uh, Room for Squares, I, I listened to that on repeat forever because that was that was his sort of making it. Yeah. And for me, that was so cool to see. I got tons of memories of him from we met when I was in about first, second grade. And so hearing him progress throughout the, you know, and knowing that he wanted to make it so bad and not necessarily make it financially. I'm not talking about him becoming a superstar just with his music to improve in his music. And that's what he loved and seeing that as it developed through high school, his passion, the fact that he's legit playing till his fingers bled, doing all kinds of things to, to make himself a success Yeah, and then seeing him have that commercial success right away with room for squares. I couldn't have been prouder of him and so happy. And that was, uh, so that that whole album was was just amazing. Yeah,
0: and the new album just came out too. He's still making some great music. So let me just recap. Great player, great brother, great friend. I mean,
2: right? right. <laughs> Trying to, try to, try to be all of those. All right, we're going to find a
0: flaw somewhere. We have another, we, we're Funny. almost
2: done. we well, <laughs> hey, just starting. Got, want to get my wife on the podcast, then, then okay. you got plenty right, maybe, of- Maybe when she comes in, we'll it. have her join for sure. Yeah, she'll all have right. pl- plenty of flaws. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Number eight, this question comes from a fan of yours in Barcelona, Spain, Alessandro Condina. He says, after Sampras, we were able to enjoy your one-handed backhand, but why haven't we seen any prominent American men with a one-handed backhand since you left the game?
2: That's a good question. I don't know um, how many we're going to see going forward anyway. I mean, you got Musetti, um, you got team uh, on tour now, but I just think the two-hander is so much easier for a lot of a lot of coaches to teach. Uh, it's easier for kids if they're starting young to pick up. And so I just don't know how many one-handed backhands are going to be taught in the future. 10, 15, 20 years from now, how many young players you are going to see in the top 100 with one-handed backhand. So I- I'd love to see it. It is to me it's uh, aesthetically pleasing, but there were definitely times when I was getting I-, I was having to return Isner's serve from up, you know, above my shoulders with a one-hander saying, "Man, I wish I had a two-hander right now. So I think a lot of players are are thinking that as well and starting out with a two-hander and then never switching.
0: Oh, man. Well, (laughs) I love it. It was a thing of beauty. Number nine, I'd like to know, in your opinion, what do you think is the quintessential James Blake match? Is there a match that you've shown your kids on TV, like YouTube? No,
2: I haven't shown them anything yet. Uh, Maybe when they get older. But uh, I think that Agassi match was on one time. Uh, I think it was like a replay on Tennis Channel or something and um i said hey guys look and they looked up and i said who's that oh that's daddy and then they maybe watched one point before they said hey can we go watch um they <laughs> want to watch cartoons or something else can we go and so i don't think they're that interested in seeing me play quite yet maybe uh maybe one day but if i were to pick one that i wanted to show them i would maybe say uh 2007 davis Cup beating michael usni Um uh, awesome that might match. be the one. I'd show. Awesome but that match. one was hard fought Two guys that I think, you know, to me, Michael Usney is about as good an example as you can get of someone that got the most out of his ability that I would absolutely hate to coach because you can't make him any better than he already has made himself working with his coach Boris, So I think for both of us, we were working and doing everything we could to win that match. And we absolutely battled for real, real tough sets. So. Um, that one might've been the one I'm about as proud of and would think of as a quintessential James Blake.
0: Awesome, awesome. We're going to talk Davis Cup in a bit. All right, number 11, James, you spent two years playing college tennis at Harvard University, <laughs> you'd ultimately give up playing for the Crimson when you started playing for the Green after yeah. sophomore year. Was that? Did you like that joke? I don't know if that, that uh, was. I
2: got away. it. That's that's tough to make a joke about the Crimson. So that's uh, that's good. All well right, well done.
0: <laughs> what is something you enjoyed about your college tennis experience?
2: Oh, I had a ton of fun. Um, for one, I was I was a freshman. My brother was a senior, so I got to play on the same team as my brother. Um, that was a ton of fun playing doubles with him for a couple times. Unfortunately. I was hurt when I got there and then he got hurt in the spring. So we really didn't get a ton of time playing together, but the camaraderie I had, I still stay in touch with at least three or four of the guys that were on the team with me there. And, you know, I just love that experience. It was humbling as a freshman. You're the one that's sleeping on the floor on the road trips. You're the one that's carrying the string machine. I was stringing rackets. I still remember, um, being in my sophomore year, I was number one in the country and I was stringing all the rackets for the whole team the night before we left and uh it was it was just you i don't know you, you have that life where you're you're eating in the dining hall you're living so simple um and just worried about classes and tennis and uh, maybe a little social life thrown in there but it was uh it was a great experience and it was a good stepping stone to the, to the pro tour because yeah. you you're in charge of your own life but you also still have schedules you still have practice scheduled you still have classes scheduled but it's up to you to maintain the, the gpa to maintain the practice schedule, and, before that, then once you get to the pros, everything's on you. Now, it's all your responsibility. You don't have to show up to practice ever if you don't want to. But if you know you want to get better, that's that's what you have to do. And you ha- you need to make your own schedule.
0: Absolutely. What was your favorite class you took at Harvard
1: University?
2: Prize sociology, I took an, okay. uh, an intro to sociology class, and I loved it. And I uh, wrote a paper about tennis, actually, while I was there about the difference in the men's and women's tours. And I uh, got into a great debate with the professor and we had different theories on it so that really sparked my interest in sociology. So if and when I do go back and finish, I've already started looking into it. Um I may switch my major to sociology.
0: Awesome. Does that hold up? Did you read it again? I mean I, I want to read it. That's that sounds amazing. Yeah, that's going to be <laughs> I good. Read
2: it. I brought it up to a bunch of the women players cuz I always wanted to see what they thought if they thought I was right or if they thought the professor was right. So I've had a, I've had a decent number say that they liked my idea better but I don't know
0: third book idea, James. That's it. (laughs) I think we're segwaying. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Number 12. We talked about the brains. Mm -hmm. Now it's time to talk about the beauty part of
1: James. (laughs)
0: There's no denying that people have been swooning over James from day one. And in 2006, you were named in People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive issue. Uh, That had to have been a fun year for sure. I'm sure.
2: (laughs) That was actually comical because um, I... I mean, I was, Chris will remember, I was five feet, nothing, 85 pounds going into high school, wearing a back brace. I, I had times where when I had, when I did grow my hair out and I had uh, like the crisscross braids, uh, I mean, half the time people would think I was uh, I was a girl. I was so little and I had the, you know, uh, the long hair and everything. And I was just, I was just tiny. So there was not a lot of attention from females at that time. What and-
0: <laughs> well, I just wonder what the aftermath of that was like for you. Because I'm, I mean, you're practicing, you're playing. I mean, you're probably, you have thousands of people that are coming to watch you now at this point. Did it, was it distracting at all?
2: No, no, not at all. I thought it was, again, I thought it was funny. I just, because I never took it seriously. I still, I mean, I still looked in the mirror and saw that kid wearing a back brace. So I didn't think of it as anything that was that, that was that impressive. I still thought I was a skinny kid. Um, You know, I didn't, I really didn't think much of it. And I thought it was hilarious. Um, And I got plenty of, I got made fun of plenty in the in the locker room, but. It was, it was worth it. It was just something that was a goof at the time. And I was still so young and not thinking about, I still remember when they did the the photo shoot for it. I, again, so naive and silly. I, they did probably, I don't know, 20 rolls of film of all normal sitting in a, sitting on a couch at a desk doing all these things, standing up here. And then the guy was about ready to leave and goes, how about we just do one, keep the jeans on, but take the shirt off. And I was like, and I was, I'd been there. He'd been there for like an hour and a half. I'm like, if that's, if you're saying that's the last one, whatever, I'll do whatever. Just like, you know, let's get higher. Of, <laughs> of course, so I do one with the shirt off. And that's, of course, the pictures I use. So I'm like, all right, <laughs> you got, <laughs> got I me. Mean, really, Come on, <laughs> that's like, a <laughs> that's
0: I'm classic. like, you set
2: me up for an hour and a half to get one picture with my shirt off. Oh, <laughs> dude, I learned my lesson. But I, again, I, I don't take myself too seriously. So for everyone that wanted to make fun of me for that, they're they, they're more than welcome to do that. It was, yeah. it was now funny. you just
0: start with the shirt off. That's much easier now. <laughs> It'll save you a lot of time, right? A much We don't want
2: to see that anymore. Maybe when I was 25, not anymore. A
0: hundred percent. I know you have a crazy fan story for us. I'm assuming you had more than one bra thrown on court at some point.
2: <laughs> I had a couple crazy stories. I had uh, the probably the crazy, definitely the craziest was uh, eventually it turned into a legal matter because I had a stalker and she claimed that we were married. And Um, that I owed her, I owed her alimony alimony. or some sort of payment. And I mean, in the in the hundreds of thousands of dollars I owed her, and she had said I had been I had been cheating on her. And it turned out that she first started this. um, Actually, the first week, my now wife traveled with me on tour because I got a call at the tournament saying the the person at the desk said, "Hey, your wife called and left this." I said, "And this is the first time my girlfriend is traveling with me at the time," and I was like wife what is going on and eventually it ended up we had to go to court because she she tried to serve me with divorce papers and we went to court and she did actually show up and the the judge said do you have a marriage license she said no said, then why are we here what do we have a case for what's going on and then you know i just i got a restraining order oh we, wow oh
0: you know, this I, is your introduction to celebrity this is yeah,
2: exactly. hilarious
1: <laughs> so wow that was, uh, okay. that
2: was a fun one
0: well tis the world you know all right well let's go a little more normal let's talk about your New York Times bestselling autobiography, Breaking Back, How I Lost Everything and Won Back My Life. It was an amazing account of perseverance, passion, and love from a year in your life that you'll never forget. We try and focus on happier times on the show, like bra-throwing fans. You know, that's that's kind of what we focus on. <laughs> exactly. But your amazing career and admiration that fans have for you wouldn't be the same without mentioning this period. First, I encourage everyone listening to go order this book on Amazon. But for quick context, James is on a practice court in Rome. He's running for a shot and his foot gets caught in a divot. He ends up breaking his neck and famously, there's an entire domino effect uh, of more injury after that. But the book follows James through his recovery and also emotional recovery as the time off from tennis allowed him to spend time with his father before he passed away. James, I love this book. As a person who lost their father, I, I, you know, I kind of have chills right now too when I, when I talk about it, but I lost my father, my grandmother almost my mother to cancer as well. I just wanted to say what a great and vulnerable book it was, even all these years later. It's so amazing. Can I ask, was writing that book therapeutic for you?
2: It was. Yeah. It really was because um, Chris knows we come from a family that maybe a lot of times don't put a lot out there. We don't express ourselves as as openly. I mean, Chris has done an amazing job of, <laughs> uh, of that and opening uh, opening up to me and for me to be able to open be open to him as well. But for the most part, we didn't do that. So for me to have a year of talking about that, thinking about that, putting pen down to paper and writing about my dad and everything, um, it really did help me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times throughout that year I'm sitting over a, a computer screen crying, uh, thinking about a memory or, or talking to the uh, Andrew Friedman who helped me with it. we go through uh, tons and tons of times and memories and stuff. And I'd be sitting there pretty much sobbing, talking to him, but it was it was worth it. It was uh, one of the best things I ever did was um, getting through that and remembering it because I think I would have, if not for that done a lot of bottling up and just pushing that down and not really, uh, not really expressing myself and not really uh, even scratching the surface of my emotions. So for me to do that, and then get the reward of people coming up to me, Years later saying, Hey, I related to this because any, not, not everyone, hopefully not everyone, but a lot of people can relate to tragedy in a family, to death, to to family circumstances, to being down on their luck, to e- anything like that happening. Not a ton of people can come up to me and relate to walking out in the U S open in front of 20,000 people. And what does that feel like? So they have this emotion and they have this emotional connection to me because of what I went through. And so if that means I can help someone else that's down on their luck at that time or having a tough time, you know, that's a lot more valuable than being able to hit a forehand.
0: Ugh, I mean the resounding positivity that the tennis world had when you came back from that injury was amazing. When you played that first match after healing in Newport, mm-hmm. that must have been so nerve-wracking, but also such relief to know that you were back on the court. Was that was yeah. that a, a feeling that you kind of held on to in your career?
2: Yeah, that whole Newport um, experience was a blur. Um, there's there's some memories from there that I'll never forget. Um, I got there after my dad was um literally on his deathbed he he told me and my brother we have to go he wasn't going to let us stay there um with him in the hospital room so we went and i get there drive a couple of hours up there and i i get there and there's a guy complaining about his room not enough towels or the ac something and furious like ranting and raving and i'm all i'm thinking to myself is like my dad's in 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 his room dying right now and this guy cares about the towels and i it just put a lot of things into perspective and then i couldn't have been prouder um of my brother going out there the next day winning a seven six in the third match in the qualifying you know I was again (laughs) sobbing you know right after that match thinking about how cool it was that he won that match and then for me to go out there and win my first match really not prepared I mean I wasn't ready to play to play tennis I got a win and then the next day to try and play my second match my body was starting to fall apart I couldn't do it um but just to get a win with my mom there looking up and seeing her in the stands and um, lucky enough that it was just two hours away so she could drive up. This wasn't somewhere f- further away. And, you know, just having that memory and then getting home the, the realization that the ATP tour is going to go on. They finished that tournament, everything else happened normal. Yeah. And I was going home to to start preparing for the funeral for my dad. So that week was just uh, I mean, a complete blur because I was so focused on my mom and what else was going on in my family that that win aside from it being cool for my mom, like that, you know, that, The actual tennis from that week, I don't remember one point. I don't remember anything about it. I don't think about it. I don't think about the tennis at all. I think about just the feeling I had when I got that win. And it was in front of my mom.
0: You inspired a lot of people from that. And you went on Oprah, James. You went on Oprah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean,
0: come on. That was a big deal. That's a lot. Yeah,
2: that was cool to meet her. She's pretty impressive.
0: Number 14, we're almost done in this round. We, right. talked, we just talked about your father. You started yeah. the James Blake Foundation, which is dedicated to cancer research. Can you tell everyone a little bit about it and where people can go to donate?
2: Yeah, uh, if you go to James Blake Foundation or JamesBlakeTennis.com, they have links to, to donate. But it was started in, um, in 2005, I came back and I wanted to do a one-time event in 2006 for my dad. And what I did was I wanted to be friends. And so obviously tennis is the easiest thing for me to do. So I asked Andy Roddick, I said, Andy, you know, I'd love to do this. He said, you tell me when and where. He knew my relationship with my dad. He knew my dad well. Tell me when and where and I'll be there. I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I went to John, Mayer, mayor, and, you know, we had dinner back in Fairfield, back in Connecticut. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. And same thing. You tell me when and where and I'll be there. So, um, having them, I then asked Gavin DeGraw who I'd become friends with as well. Hey, if you do you mind coming and play the piano and doing something as well, same thing, he's happy to help. So we did this event, I think about eight, 9,000 people showed up. David, I'm a huge Mets fan. We did it in Virginia. David Wright showed up unannounced, just came in and donated a bat, a signed bat. And like, I, I couldn't have been, I mean, couldn't have been a classier guy to show up without me even thinking to invite him. And you know, I didn't realize he would, he would be there and, and available. Um, so this event was a, a great success. I couldn't have been happier about it. This was a tribute to my dad. My mom was there. And the fact that these friends were willing to drop everything they were doing to have this uh, memorial to my dad meant a ton to me. And then after that, Andre saw what we had done. And he told my agent, he said, Hey, he's doing another one. I'm in, you know, I'll, I'll do it next year. And I talked to my agent and he said, just so you know, like you've got Andre already committed. You can't stop now. I said, no, you're right. Well, if Andre's in, I'm in. So we did it the next year. And then we did it every year, uh, pretty much up until I, I retired. And then since then we have to morph because now I can't help others because I would go and do their events and they would come and yeah. do mine. Did yeah, I see so- that you guys
0: are organizing a New York City marathon? Is there something? So,
2: yeah. So now that's one of our biggest fundraisers is the marathon. Are you um, running I- in this? I ran it in 2015. I did oh it once. I told them you need I would a do vacation. You need to stop, James. I'm, yeah,
0: I'm, I, oh, I'm getting annoyed
2: now with how perfect you
0: are. You need to stop
2: I, it right now. I told him I would do it once because I'm not a runner. So before I trained for the marathon, I had never in my life run more than five miles at a time. Oh and really, then, James? Oh really? Since then, since then <laughs> I don't think I've run more than four <laughs> or five as well. So when I run, I go three miles, and that's about it. So this was that was a tough one to do the. uh, to do the marathon, but I said, I would do it once. I did it once. I I got my goal. So I said, I'm not doing it again. I, I I broke four hours. That was all I was trying to do. The only thing is my wife is now threatening to do one and she's a better runner than me. So when she beats me, I told him I might have to try to really train and see if I could beat her, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think I can do that. She's a better runner.
0: Well, I'll mention the website at the end of the show. Amazing. Absolutely. Amazing. Our last question in this round, you had such an amazing career, James. We're going to talk about it now. What do you hope the tennis world will remember you for?
2: Oh, the same thing I said before I started my career was that uh, someone asked me that right at the beginning, what do you want to be remembered for? And I said, I, I want to have a career where people can say I did it the right way. I did everything I could to, to be successful and left it all out there on the court. And it's someone that a kid can look up to and say, Hey, that's who I want to be like, or that's what I want to be like, not just for the results, because I know I'm realistic. I know my results were were good, but not... Uh, anything that's going to end up in Newport. So, um, you know, I don't, I didn't have Pete's career. I didn't have Andre or Andy's career, but, um, I did everything I could to be the best I can be. And I, anything more, I've always said, if I, if I start complaining and having regrets and saying, I wish I had one more then it just, it just sounds and seems greedy to me. So yep. I did everything I could with the, with everything, everything I was given. And, um, <laughs> I'm happy, you know, I, I always wanted to have the same, same goal that when I hang them up to know that I did everything I could and no regrets. So, that's the way I feel, and I hope people remember me for doing, doing things the right way.
0: I think so. Great job, James. You crushed that. We're learning <laughs> so much today. That was so fun. We're halfway through today. Before right. we jump into your career, Chris, you were telling me earlier that your mother, Tom Jr., and Thomas Sr. were all great tennis players. You yourself played college tennis at Tulane as well. So really, it was a truly family activity, which I found so fascinating. How was it that almost your entire family became such great tennis players?
1: It wasn't almost, it was actually all. Um, There's actually four of us. Um, There's a brother that's nine years older than me. And, um, you know, the running joke with mom is that her kids got better as she went along, you know, (laughs) because Howard was a decent tennis player and a decent student. I was better, Thomas was better, James was the best. And, um, you know, the the only constant in all of those things was mom. She really went out on the court and played with all of us. Um, The only difference was, you know, with Thomas and James, their dad was a part of that. Um, With with me and with Howard, it was really just mom giving us a racket and saying, go amuse yourself on the wall. (laughs) And that's what we did. But, um, yeah, I mean, mom played for as long as we can all remember. And. That's how we all got started.
0: I love it. You told me that you actually won a mother-son national title with your mom. I found that so fascinating. But what I failed to mention is that she was pregnant with James. So it was
1: kind of James's first title, really, in theory. (laughs) You know, I will give credit to mom for that title. I will not give credit to James. (laughs) The The only thing I will remember about that is, you know, I remember when we split sets in that final and mom was really starting to drag. Um, you know, she was six <laughs> months pregnant. And, you know, they they said, you know, just stick your mother at the net and you do everything. And um, I did, but honestly, up until then, she was the reason why we won that tournament. I mean, she was the best mother out there. And um, so, yeah, I will give her the credit, but James <laughs> Duncan, not That is a
0: <laughs> great piece of trivia, which I love. So speaking of <laughs> trivia, I hate to bring up this love fest, but it's time for our game today. I'd love to play a game called I 40 love you. It's gonna be Chris versus James in a brother versus brother, tennis match trivia showdown, all about James's career and life. Chris, I'm gonna ask you two questions about James's career. And then James, I'm gonna ask you two questions that will test how well you remember the days on tour for James uh, Riley Blake. All right. If we happen to end up in a 2-2 tie today, I'm gonna check both your phones to see who the last son was to call your 85 year old mother Betty, and the most recent son wins the tiebreak. So they're both looking at each other right now.
2: (laughs) I know I'm gonna win for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You called her yesterday at 3:15. I know it. (laughs) Oh,
0: I love it. All right, James. Here you're gonna start us off today. Here's your first question. You get your very first wins on the ITF Futures Tour way back in 1998 in Waco, Texas you'd make it all the way to the semifinals of that event as a wild card. One of your wins in Waco was against a player that just like you also had a brother that played professional tennis on tour. Which player did you get one of your very first singles wins against at that futures event?
2: Mike Bryan. Yeah, that was
0: easy. Look at that.
2: All right. I do remember (laughs) he threw up before the match. He had food poisoning. So that that made it a little easier for me. Did he really? (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Look, we're full of trivia today.
0: I also yeah. left out that he's won 18 grand slams. He was number one yeah. for a billion yeah. years. Yeah. All that yeah.
2: Stuff.
0: <laughs> James, I heard, obviously, we just listened from Chris earlier about your family dynamic and how everyone ended up being such great players. You obviously were a great junior and you ended up playing division one tennis. I'm assuming growing up that there were always fantasies about turning pro. Mm-hmm. Was enrolling at Harvard a tough decision for you? I know Thomas was there, so maybe not as tough as I thought, but was it the goal to play there for a couple of years and then try out the pro tour?
2: No, my goal was to go for four years. Was the, I didn't realize things happened really quickly for me. So I did not realize how close I was to that pro level. I thought there was such a big gap. I, I really, I still went to college thinking I was going to play number four on the team because I used to see my brother and I thought he was so much better than me. And so all the guys that were playing with him and against him and that could compete with him, I thought were leaps and bounds above me. So I was hoping I could play number four. And when I got there and the first rankings came out and I was four in the country, I was a a bit shocked. So, um, I didn't plan on that at all. And then after I saw how well I did my freshman year, um, realized that then I went to Waco, played that future, did some, did okay in some futures that summer, that maybe this is something I could actually do for a living. So then that sophomore year, I really committed after during my sophomore year, I decided I'm either going two years or I'm going four years. I wasn't going to go. three. I was either going to turn pro or I was going to get my degree.
0: You played some futures and challenger events before turning pro in 1999, but your first taste of pro tennis was getting a wild card into qualifying at both the 1997 and 98 US Opens. You yep. actually almost qualified for the open getting to the last round in 98. That must have been a dream come true. What do you remember from those first US Opens?
2: Well, the first one, I was still amazed they gave me a wild card. So I, I again, I thought the pro that was my first pro tournament, I thought pros were I mean, miles, miles ahead of any junior, anything I could do in, the, in my junior career. So I do remember getting a set in my first match uh, against Lawrence Thielman. And I was amazed um, that I even got a set. I was so happy that I was even in the match. That I didn't get blown off the court. Um, luckily, he wasn't one of these like overpowering guys. He was kind of a, a little more finesse player and had a uh, serving volley type of game. But I, um, I just, I was so amazed that I was even close. And then the second one, getting that close, uh, losing to David Wheaton in the, the last round of qualities. I was, uh, I actually, that one, I was I amazed I won one match, then amazed I won another match. Then I'm playing David Wheaton. I'm like, oh my goodness, I have a chance. Really, I have a realistic chance because he was at the end of his career. He was, um, you know, well past his prime. Great um, so I thought I had a chance. And then I don't know if it messed with my head or him coming out, just ripping and having nothing to lose sort of. And he just took it to me. But um, I remember those matches uh, yeah. pretty well.
0: Well, you, you'll have your time in the spotlight in a bit at the US <laughs> Open, but in 1999, you were tearing up the challenger circuit and you'd win your first ATP level match in Newport on grass, yep. beating a legend, former Wimbledon finalist, Malavia Washington. I read you were a big fan of Malavia's, who wasn't though, right? I loved watching yeah. their entire yeah. family. So, so much class, but yeah. that must've been so strange to see the draw and play against a player that you had so much respect for. What do you remember from that time in Newport?
2: Yeah, I remember first set. I believe was 18 minutes. Um, if we could look back on those, uh, and he beat me in 18 minutes in the first set. And Newport is a tournament where the ball bounces so low; it's not like the grass courts in Wimbledon. It, it doesn't bounce up at all. It's like the real, real old school grass courts. And I was just kind of in a frenzy. I couldn't, I couldn't get make anything. I, I was, he was keeping balls low. He was drop shotting. He was, he was blowing me off the court. And then I just started saying, "All right, hold serve. All I can just hold serve. Focus on that." did that, ended up getting a few opportunities. And then towards the end, I realized his knee was bad. It's unfortunate because he was such a great champion and his knee was destroyed and he couldn't come back. He tried that event and one more and then realized that he, he just couldn't do it because his knee was never going to be the same. So yeah. it was lucky for me that I got that as a draw because for one, I got to beat someone I, I, I kind of idolized. But also, I probably wouldn't have beaten anyone else in the draw. <laughs> I was uh, I was not ready for that kind of competition. And it showed because I didn't win another match on tour for about two years.
0: Well, you'd continue playing some great tennis and building up your ranking. You'd play mostly challengers for the next few years, winning a lot of them. In 2001, you'd make your first tour semifinal again in Newport, an event that obviously had a lot of great memories for you in your career. And you'd get your first win at a Grand Slam later that summer at the U.S. Open. And you'd crack the top 100 for the first time in October of that year. But then 2002 starts, and this is where things start changing for you, James. You'd start 2002 at number 71 in the world, and you'd finish the year in the top 30 at number 28. In Memphis 2002, you'd get your first of 19 top 10 wins in your career, beating Tommy Haas. But it would be Washington, D.C., where you would announce yourself as an elite player by winning your first title and beating legend Andre Agassi en route to do it. Agassi was six in the world at the time. We're going to talk about that epic match in New York at the U S open in a bit, but what do you think made all the difference in getting that huge win against Andre in Washington?
2: Well, probably a couple of things. One, I won my first doubles title the week before with Todd Martin. And I think that just helped my confidence a little. <laughs> it also made it that I got to DC a little late. So there wasn't as much real like pressure built up. Um, and I still joke. That was the, probably the one event at that point that my coach missed. So my coach's sister was getting married that week. And so I had my buddy, um, this guy Evan Poster, Who's been my best friend. I was best man at his wedding, um, since we were probably 10 years old. And, um, he was my coach that week and he would warm me up and then he'd probably go out, uh, on the town with his buddies and come, come back in and warm me up. And he is the best at just keeping me loose though. And so everything was just like, oh yeah, go out and win it. Just, yeah, go have fun. You know, he's, and he would talk to Brian, Brian would give him whatever, uh, advice he wanted to give him, but he just kept me so loose. So I went out to play Andre and you know what? It's Andre six in the world. You know, what? go out and take your chances. Absolutely rip the ball. And I did that. I was going for it. And I still remember times where I was like, Ooh, I, even I, for me, like that was going for a little too much. Like I'm, I'm just being too aggressive. So I had to reel it in a little bit, but for the most part, it was take your chances, you know, see what you can do and see how your game really matches up with Andre. And before I knew it, it was, it it went straight sets. It wasn't something that was where I was, sweating it at seven six and a third or anything i i mean i i got the break and then i just felt good about the way i was playing and i still remember that match being like okay just see the ball hit the ball and and things are going in and that was uh that was a ton of fun so awesome i mean what a force was andre
0: agassi on the court to say you beat andre agassi you know legend. Yeah, legends it was, it was
2: unbelievable it was, it was uh it was a great week yeah
0: Definitely the biggest match of your career at that point. Can we talk about the final? You had made a couple finals already. It was your third final. So third time's a charm for you. Did you go out and celebrate after that first title?
2: Yeah, because my buddy was there (laughs) and uh, my parents were there. I still had a bet with my dad. Um, So my dad, I'm growing a little scruff right now, but my dad had a full beard for my entire life. And my mom said that he had it for the entire time she ever knew him. So I made a bet with him that if I ever won an atp tour event he had to shave his beard so the next week he did and so we I, so he was there so i celebrated we went to dinner with them and they took off and then then i really celebrated once they left and had some of my buddies that were in <laughs> I town love it. what's james uh, blake cocktail of choice back then shoot i don't know it was probably just beer uh no. now uh, now i love mezcal since the pandemic okay. i've gotten into mezcal mezcal soda and a lime is good is to know
1: go good to know chris what's yours My drink of choice? Oh, gosh. Um, Vodka and seven is mine. Okay. All
0: right. Well, (laughs) stay stay staying basic. I love it, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, James, you were playing some great tennis that summer. The week before, you just mentioned you'd won the biggest doubles title of your career at the Masters event in Cincinnati. So let's go on to question two, and this is going to be your first question, Chris. Okay. Both you and James played college tennis, and James's partner that week in Cincinnati also played college tennis. They would win that event and also partner the same year to go undefeated in Davis Cup doubles. Which former U.S. Open singles finalist did your brother team up with to win the biggest doubles title of his career in 2002?
1: The only thing I can think of was it would be uh, Mike Bryan. Is that the right answer?
2: No, no, no. Not, the, not one, right. the one that people used to say you looked like. Oh, Todd Martin. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) It was Todd Martin.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, James told me that. James told me once that I looked like a five-year younger version of Todd Martin. And I said, James, I'm five years older than Todd Martin. He said, yeah, I know. Um, so the- <laughs> he always oh, knows how great.
0: to say the right thing. There that's we go. <laughs> exactly.
2: uh, and I hope Todd listens to that, because that was that, that is a very true story. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My cheeks are hurting. I love it. All right.
0: Well, can we talk about your doubles career for a minute, James? You'd right. win seven ATP doubles titles in your career, playing mostly with friends, it seemed like, through most of your career. You'd win titles with Jack Sock. Sam Curry, Marty Fish. You'd even play with your brother, Thomas. So yeah. I think that's really cool. How important was doubles to you on tour?
2: You know, it was a lot of fun. It, it definitely helped with a few skills, uh, especially returns. It definitely helped my returns a lot. But I, I, like you said, I played a lot with friends. I loved doing it when it was someone I was playing with that, that made me laugh that we had a good time. Our, our games meshed, our personalities meshed. So that's why I played with Todd. I played with Marty. Mark Merklin was one of my favorite partners as well. I won a couple of with him. Yeah. Um, so I just, I loved playing, um, but only if it was the right situation. I played a couple of times with Isner that didn't go well. Our games apparently didn't mesh. We got along great off the court, but man, our games didn't mesh well when we played doubles together. But, um, Sam and I, Sam and I, we joked around. We I think we went like three or four times. We we thought we should be good together and we lost like three or four first rounds in a row. And then as soon as we won a match, we won the title. So there all we right, go. we we're just, we're boom or bust. That's all me and Sam were. So Sometimes we, uh, it
0: looks good on paper and you just never yeah, know, right? What exactly. was playing with Thomas? Like you guys played a lot of events together too. I think you made the semifinals of Newport one year too. So, I mean, you had some wins. Yeah. Was that fun playing with your brother?
2: That was a ton of fun. And, and we got so much, of, uh, uh, we got a, such a kick out of our parents coming to watch us play and seeing that we played together and, Um, I still remember the first time we played together was actually the qualities of the U.S. Open that year. They gave me a wild card. I didn't think there was any chance. They'd also give us a wild card in the doubles. And uh, and they did. And we played uh, Sanguinetti and Radulescu and lost six in the third. That was uh, that was a rough one. But I remember our college coach being there and seeing us go seven, six in the third in the U.S. Open said, I think we found our number one doubles team for next year. So we uh, we played together a little in college and. Then on tour, it was fun. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite memories from, from any challenger ever was, uh, winning the Winnetka challenger with my brother. And that was just, it it was so cool to, I mean, you hold up the big check and you know, it was it wasn't that big since it was a challenger, but it, (laughs) it looked big and, you know, just doing that with your brother and obviously like Chris, you know, we had the same experiences growing up. So to know how we grew up and how we got to where we were was uh it was it was a lot of fun.
0: Oh well I love that man. Arguably your biggest doubles result came in two thousand nine when you made the Wimbledon semifinals with Marty Fish, losing ten eight in the fifth. That one must have been tough to let go of at yeah. certain points.
2: Actually we were up two sets of love. Um uh, yeah. and then that was my fault. I uh I definitely I, I I started faltering. I don't know what happened, but I um I actually Marty I mean Marty kind of carried us throughout most of those first couple sets, I was just, I was holding my own. And then my level dropped a little I was really struggling returning. return. It was Nestor and Zimenich and I was really struggling returning their serves. Wasn't putting a lot of returns in. Marty was doing it anytime we got a break, it was almost all Marty doing the, doing a lot of the work. And I was just kind of holding my serve. And then finally the fifth set, I, I ended up getting broken and, and, um, couldn't quite hold my own. You're being but, um, nice
0: today, Jamie. You're being nice again. No, no, it? no. I
2: was, that one was on me for sure. How did you process losses in your career?
0: I actually had <laughs> one of your doubles partners. I had Jan Michael Gamble on the show this past okay. week. And he said for him, he would go back to his hotel room and he would stare at the wall in his hotel for sometimes an hour just to kind yeah. of release the energy. What was your method of moving on
2: after um, a loss? Mine wasn't good Um, that that you could get my wife in here and tell some stories. I I was (laughs) basically, I couldn't be, couldn't be consoled. Couldn't be helpful or productive in any way for that day. I still didn't understand how people would lose a match and then just be in the, in the cafeteria, eating lunch and talking with everyone. I went back to my hotel room. I didn't stare at the wall, but I would stare at the TV or try to go to sleep or do something, but I was just furious and fuming. And I knew. I even remember telling my now wife when she would call and be like, "Oh, you lost." Like, okay, well, let's talk about something else. And I said, "No, it's better we just don't talk at all. You know, it's not good. I'm going to say something I shouldn't say." And yeah, it's, it's not, so interesting,
0: right? Just so to I needed
2: I needed time. Yeah, I just needed time. But then, uh, you know, as soon as my coach and my coach knew me so well, so it was like, okay, you know, eight a.m. tomorrow. Like, okay, now what do we do? What's the next plan for today? What's what time is practice? what are we going to do? Are we traveling? Whatever. You know, once the next day was there now it's on to what's next. Yeah. But I needed that day. I needed that, um, that day to kind of just beat myself up. Which is not the healthiest way to do it. No, we all process
0: differently. No, it makes complete sense. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But was there ever a match that it took you a lot longer to get over? I know you said maybe the next day you were cool. Was there one that stung more? I I hate to bring up bad things. There's a a million great things we're going to talk about, but was there one that really just stung the most?
2: You know that Olympics one stung, but I couldn't. I couldn't really, um, couldn't really wallow for very long. I had to play the bronze medal match the next day, so that one hurt a little bit. But yeah. you know, tons of them hurt yeah. um, at the time. But then, uh, as you look back, as you you start realizing big picture, you you did your best. You can't win them all. I won plenty of close matches too. So a lot of times, that's one thing I would think about. I would say, you know what, I lost this one, but. I'm not over here crying over the other ones that I won when I was down match point and I came back and won or something like that. And that person is probably wallowing as well. But I did the same thing to plenty of other people. So I I don't think any took more than that, that one day.
0: Well, speaking of doubles, I mentioned you played Davis Cup with Todd Martin. You'd be first asked to play on Team USA the year 2000. And you were a huge part of that team that won the title. You always made yourself available to play. You'd play in 17 different ties in your career was Davis cup so important to you because you played college tennis?
2: Yeah. Any sort of, uh, team event I loved in, uh, we talked about Hopman cup, Davis cup, uh, I played that world team cup. Uh, and I just loved it. I love the feeling because you're playing an individual sport for most of your life. Yeah. So when you get the opportunity to be on a team, played on my high school tennis team. And I just loved that feeling of being accountable to, to your teammates, to your coaches and, um, and then feeling the pride in what you do and you feeling the pride in what they do. So, for me davis cup when i first played in 01 with andy we had a real real good connection and we both felt like you know what we're still early in our careers but we felt like hey we can do this we we can be holding up this uh this cup we can we can win the davis cup together um and we were kind of all in right from the start um so i I love that feeling some of my favorite memories on tour are the davis cup weeks whether they're on the court or just playing cards in the team room, playing pranks on the, uh, the hitting partners or yeah. whatever we were doing. We had, uh, we had such great weeks and they, they were bonding trips for our life, basically.
0: That 2007 final in Oregon against defending champion Russia was a huge deal. The U.S. Mm-hmm. hadn't won the Davis Cup since 1995, ironically against Russia. Yeah. We talked about you know, your experience on Davis Cup and, and the pranks, so many amazing wins. Do you think you'd ever be a Davis Cup captain one day?
2: Something I would I would definitely be interested in. Marty <laughs> Fish doing a great job right now. He's one yeah. of my best friends, uh, my best friend on tour basically. So I'm happy for him to be doing it. Yeah. Um, if he ever gets tired of it, or if if there is ever the opportunity, I would love that that chance. But the the way things have changed right now, I also want to see how how it works in the in the future because it seems like with Labor Cup, with ATP Cup, that they're really taking some of the uh, priority off of Davis Cup. So I would hate to see that event go away. I would hate to see that event be minimized. Yeah. Uh, so I, if it comes back to I would love to see it come back to its prominence and then be a part of it yeah because those those teams uh, were a lot of fun all right well we're moving on to James's final question
0: today and it's about his amazing 2005 season James okay. here's your last question it's kind of a strange one but okay. there's a point to it I promise <laughs> the first half of your 2005 season was a tough one for you as you were trying okay. to regain your form after your near career ending injury and your personal time off in 2004 but in May of 2005, You'd win a challenger tournament that would nope. start to turn your season around. Do you remember in which city you beat American Brian Baker to win that challenger title?
2: Oh my goodness, I, I can picture it. And why am I remember? It's in Mississippi. Okay. Oh, this one. It's where, <laughs> the, it's where the casino is. Um, right. It's right. I know this. Um, oh man, I can't believe I'm going to get this wrong. I remember. I can go through match by match for the 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 event. Wow. And I can't think of the name of that city. Um,
0: He's trying to level it up today. I like it. He's making it competitive with you. I can't. can't, I can't <laughs> you got everything. It, all right, here we go. It's, do you know the name, Chris?
1: Yes, Tunica.
0: Tunica. Tunica. Gosh. You I know what? I'm sorry to bring up Tunica, but you'd actually go on a 14-match win streak. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of tournaments in a row before the French that year. But more importantly, it was my excuse to bring up Tunica because it's the casino mecca of the South. And yeah. I didn't realize that i have a very world famous poker player on the show today i had no idea you were on bravo's celebrity
2: poker yeah. showdown as well
0: i was rooting for you james you lost thank
2: you so yeah i used to i actually went to tunica a few times that's sad that i forgot it cuz i went to tunica a few times from memphis when i play in memphis i went to tunica for like to play poker a few times and the fact that I couldn't remember it is is showing you should that tweet Tunica today
0: when yeah. the show comes out. You
2: need to just say love.
0: Everyone go visit Tunica. <laughs> <Definitely>.
2: <laughs> were, there,
0: were there any other card sharks in the ATP tour that we don't
2: know about? Andy got into it a little bit when that whole poker craze was going on. Um, I know Rafa has started to deal with poker stars. I don't know how seriously he takes it. Um, there were a couple guys. The guy by the name of Devin Bowen was... Okay. Uh, and so there are some guys, uh, Sebastian Prieto, who used to coach, um, uh, Juan Martin Del Potro. Yeah. He was, those were the guys that were good at hearts. Bobby Reynolds as well. was good. At, those were the guys that were good at hearts at that time. I love, I was, hearts.
0: I love hearts. I was a Canasta guy, a spades and Canasta. Those are my games. So yeah, I'm old man games. Okay. Well, by the summer of 2005, you were fit and you'd found your form again. You made the final of Washington losing to the amazing Andy Roddick. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks later, you'd win your second career title in new Haven beating yeah. Luciana Lopez. Yeah, that Connecticut title have a different feeling for you, James. Knowing what you'd been through for that year.
2: Yeah, that one was uh, was definitely different. I came in there as a wild card, I think. Uh, definitely, yeah. Uh, I still talked to Ann Wuster, the tournament director, about it. That she gave me that wild card, and so everyone I beat in that event was ranked higher than me. And then getting through that, I think I beat Haas as well. Then getting through and beating Feliciano, I was down a set, hadn't made any progress on his serve at all, uh, and there was a rain delay, and went in there and just kind of. Uh, for me that's an advantage because I, I think my coach a lot of people didn't rate him as high as some of the other super coaches or whatever but to me he was the best coach i could have ever had and getting to talk to him made a big difference i went back out there and and kind of uh got on a roll broken pretty quickly and then got up early in the third and, and went on to that title and man that was a ton of fun i still that's had fun. um i had my whole was there that ann had renamed the, the j block because She couldn't believe at the beginning of the week that I said, Hey, I'm going to have kind of a lot of people coming. I'm going to need some tickets. Okay. What do you think? Like 10? Oh no. So I said 20. (laughs) No, 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 no. It started at around 50. And then by the end of the week, it was closer to like a hundred. She's like, I'm just going to give you a whole block, just a whole block of seats. You take them, do what you want with them. And so she said, I'm going to, I came up with a name because she said that they were making shirts and they had all this stuff. And she said, people are calling the ticket office to ask to sit in that. And so we got to call it something. So I called it the J Block, and that's what that's what started. It was her, uh, her doing that. So she thought that was hilarious. But to have those friends and family there watching was uh, was definitely pretty special.
0: And did you write? Good job, Anne. That's right.
1: And
2: that's great.
0: <laughs> New Haven would also be the scene of your last career title in two thousand seven. Yeah. That was your tenth title. Of all the titles, I know this is kind of hard. It's like you know picking between your kids. But is there <laughs> one maybe that meant just a little bit more to you than the others?
2: I'd say maybe the the DC one, just because it was the first. Beating Andre was pretty special. Uh coming back from a set down in the in the finals um, on one of the that was one of the hottest matches I think I ever played in my yeah. life. I think it was ESPN cameras were there and they had the thermometer on the court and it was pinned at 120. Paradorn, I played Paradorn Sushi fan. He uh he actually went through shirts. He was out of shirts at the end of the match because he we were sweating so much and he was just going through them. So that match, I was pretty proud to win that one. So that was uh and that was definitely special with my with my parents there. Um that yeah. was the only one my dad got to see. So that one was uh, was probably the most special. That makes sense, then.
0: I mean, it seems to me there's there are a lot of special cities that you played in in your career. Cambridge, Newport, Washington, New Haven, New York. Chris, I'm assuming there's a trend here. Obviously, the Yonkers' blood really helped. He played very well in the Northeast. I think that's kind of where you excelled. Well, let's talk about the Northeast. I want to talk about the U.S. Open. We're almost at the end of our show today. Your 2005 run to the U.S. Open quarterfinals was masterful. After that classic match with Andre Agassi, he had one of my very favorite tennis quotes after that match when he said, I wasn't the winner, tennis was, which was nothing but true. You played some of the best tennis of your life those two weeks. In the third round, you'd have your first ever meeting against world number two, Rafael Nadal, and you'd beat him in four sets in the third round. Chris, you mentioned this was your favorite
1: James match. What was it about that match
0: in particular that really was so amazing for you?
1: Well, I thought it was some of the best tennis I've ever seen him play. And it was, in my mind anyway, a real breakthrough. I mean, I think that was one of the matches where, for one thing, it was in the US Open, uh, so essentially it's right in our backyard, and you know, he played some of his best tennis, beating one of the best people in the world. I mean, I think that was when people really sat up and took notice and said, this guy is really good. And so yeah, I thought that was very special for me. I thought that was a great match.
0: Well, James, you'd beat Rafa three times in your career. What was it about his game that in particular, that was a better matchup for you? Was there something about him that just was like, "Ooh, I have to, I love playing him.
2: Yeah. I liked playing him. Um, for one, I feel like his serve was, uh, it would come directly into my back. I mean, most people on tour served to my back end 90% of the time. Cause they you know, felt like it was uh, less of a weapon for me, but, His just kind of, it didn't jump way up because he had the lefty slider. And so it was right in my strike zone on the backhand. So I felt way more comfortable returning a serve. And then he didn't like people taking time away from him. And I love taking time away from people. So I would go into those matches thinking, I'm going to absolutely take over this baseline and take it, you know, I'm not going to get pinned back. I'm not going to let him whip his forehand up to my backhand. I'm going to disrupt that pattern as quickly as possible. So for me, it was a relatively simple game plan where I couldn't let him dictate play that way. And if that meant I had to take some chances a little earlier, it obviously helped that he's number two in the world, so you don't have as much pressure when you're playing someone like that. So I could take those chances early on in points and feel good about it. But I also felt like what I was doing was affecting him because he didn't like that, especially that first match I played with him, where he had had so much success on clay earlier that year. He'd already had some success on the hard courts, and he hadn't seen my game really, and I hadn't seen his as much. I'd seen his, but I hadn't been against him. So for him, I could tell it was frustrating him that I was taking that time away and I wasn't giving him chances to set up and uh, have the time to really rip his forehand and get into the rallies. I was just gonna say, hey, I'm gonna be a disruptor and I could tell it was bothering him. So that was that was a lot of fun for me. I mean, he <laughs> happens to be one of the nicest yeah. guys as well on tour, but you know, he's also uh, one of the fiercest competitors. So I love that about him too, is that you can go in there and you can fight absolutely as hard as you want. You wanna win scrap for every single point, And then after the match, he says, too good you know, or you say too good to him. You know, that's it. I love the Blake
0: Nadal matchup. You go on to have a great win in the fourth round against the always tough Tommy Robredo that would set up the quarterfinal with Andre. Close your ears for one second, James, because I need to set up the context for everyone listening. James is up, two sets to love, a break in the third, playing lights out until Andre charged back and ultimately squeaked out the nail biter, winning seven, six in the fifth. Mm -hmm. Amazing. James, did you ever play in front of a louder crowd in your entire career?
2: I don't think so. Um, no, maybe some of those Davis cup ones, but no, that one was pretty special. And especially since the, the crowd kind of shifted, you know, there was a lot of hype going into that match. I was coming back from injury. Andre was towards the end of his career. Is it going to be his last? And a lot of times those hyped matches don't live up to the hype. It's, you know, all one-way traffic or it's just not as good tennis or whatever. But, um, that one, they came out i think i'd say probably maybe 60 40 cheering for him because i had my big fan base as well but he's andre so they're they're a little more for him i go out and win the first two sets now they're big time cheering for him so now it's (laughs) maybe 90 10 for him and they're all going crazy they want more tennis he starts charging back now it's the fifth set they're back to being 60 40 or 50 50 it's split and then in the tiebreaker i honestly feel like so many of them there were i'd say most of most of the crowd i mean i had my fans he had his fans but though all those ones in the middle I honestly feel like they were just cheering. They were just cheering oh, good yeah. tennis. They were happy to be there and that was that was a ton of fun because it was so um it was so fun again another great competitor. Someone that won tons of matches with his mind, tons of matches with uh, with his athleticism and his ball striking, but it was just fun to fun to compete with another great champion.
0: So great to watch it this week. I recommend everyone going back to watch that. It was so amazing. I know you talked about that match a lot in your career. Any I don't know when the last time you watched it, but was there anything you change a little bit? anything at all in that match. Okay. If he
2: had that drop shot at six all, I would have gone cross court instead of going, trying to go behind him to to his back end. You always go, you always go in front of a slower runner behind a fast runner. He's he's not the fastest guys. I should have gone in front of him. Should have gone to the forehand side, but he ended up, he executed an absolutely perfect backhand pass. on me. And too good. Too good.
0: Well, you'd have another great run in 2006 by BD Moya and Thomas Burdick before playing Roger in the quarters. You'd actually play in 13 U.S. Open main draws in your career. And of those 13 losses, five of those matches were five setters. And the other three were Federer and Djokovic. So <laughs> what that tells me is that if you're going to try and beat James Blake at the U.S. Open, it's going to be a rumble. So
2: yeah, well done I always that way, too.
0: We're wrapping up this section with a significant tournament for you. After the U.S. Open quarterfinal, you would play in the 2006 Masters Series Cup in Shanghai for the first time, getting all the way to the finals by defeating Nadal again, Davidenko, and Nalbandian. Yeah. You'd have your best year on paper that year, winning five ATP singles titles, and you'd also make another three finals, including Indian Wells.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: With those results, you'd get to number four in the world after Shanghai, which is absolutely remarkable, unbelievable. Congrats. Were rankings a big deal to you in your career or, or titles? What motivated you on tour?
2: I did not think as much about, for some reason, I don't think I thought as much about the rankings. I thought about, um, I always talked about this with my coach and I talked about in press conferences. I wanted to try to get better. And I always felt like I was trying to get better. You know, and Matt V. Lander was someone that was a little instrumental in my career. I practiced with him when I was young and he would always say, you know, the ranking, all that stuff, the ranking, the money, that comes um you don't think about it you think about the process and he said you just do things the right way and all that stuff will come and so I really did try to take that to heart and I know it's a cliche and it's easy to say but I really um didn't think as much about the ranking because when you go out there and you're playing I I think I probably thought about it really early in my career when you said when I got to number whatever 28 in 2001 or two that's when I thought about ranking and that cost me probably three or four months of me thinking too much about ranking until I realized, Hey, it doesn't matter what someone's ranked. If they're on the other side of the net, they want to beat you They're They're gunning for you. The only thing it's going to do is your ranking gets higher is make the target bigger because then now they're looking to have one of their big wins. So you have to try to match their intensity, no matter who it is, no matter if they're ranked hundred or one, you need to match that intensity. And so that was what I started thinking about a lot more was that the ranking doesn't matter except for, I tried to think about the only time I tried to like use things to, to my advantage is I would say the ranking matters if I'm top 10 in the world and I'm playing someone that doesn't have experience and we're in a battle. We're at five all in the third set. So you know what? I've been in more situations like this than they have. Yeah. So this is where I get the advantage of being ranked higher. Those are the only times I ever try to really think about uh, ranking. And it was just a trick myself into saying, hey, I've got an advantage right now. I'm, I'm better at this situation.
0: Professor Blake is in the house today. As well. <laughs> I love it. If I could give you Shanghai beating Federer or Indian Wells beating Federer, which do you pick?
2: Oh, Shanghai! Uh, mainly because when I when we won, when we finished that, I um, we we're doing the trophy ceremony, and I didn't realize at the time. I didn't because again, I didn't think about this. But he got a Mercedes for winning it, and <laughs> I looked at him as as we're getting as we're doing this. It's a Mercedes, and I was six. I looked at him and said, "How many of these have you gotten?" He's like, um, "He's like, I think like six or seven. Like he he, I want to say he got like because he won five of the Mercedes Masters Cup. so he had five of those four when Lexus was a sponsor of the open. He won four of those, uh, one in the BMW, I think the event in Munich. So he had gotten about eight. I, I was like, so what are you gonna do with that one? And he's like, oh, I think I'm gonna give it to my aunt. I'm like, oh, God, this is unbelievable. I, I can't, I was so frustrated that, and then to, to just the poor salt in the wound they came into the locker room afterwards and gave me a, a bicycle, a Mercedes-Benz bicycle. I said, oh, this is what the runner-up gets. <laughs> like, where can we ship this? I said, I don't care where you ship that. <laughs> 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 you got a car and about a million and a half dollars. You're not giving me a bicycle. <laughs> okay, so absolutely Shanghai. Okay, all
0: right. That that makes yeah. complete sense. I love it. All right, well, we're going to move to our last question of the day. We're going to skip ahead a couple years to 2008. It's for you, Chris. It's possibly okay. for the win. All right. He let you in with Tunica. So let's do it. I'd like to go back to that match against Roger at the Olympics. So here's the last question of the day. We mentioned earlier that controversial semifinal match James had in Beijing against Fernando Gonzalez. But can you remember who James played in the next round during the bronze medal match at the 2008 Olympic Games?
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, and I just looked at that and I, I, no, no. <laughs> He's
2: pretty good. He's a pretty good player. He's pretty
0: good, yeah. He's pretty good, he's yeah. a pretty good player. It's not a bad loss at all. Yeah. It's not a... All right. Well, it's... it
1: wasn't Djokovic, was yeah. it? it? Was Djokovic? Okay. All right. Then I got it right. There you yeah, go. You win.
0: So James, I'm looking at you as the competitor and also the ESPN analyst at the moment. Mm-hmm. Novak is having a historic year, absolutely unstoppable so far. Australia, the French, Wimbledon. In your expert opinion, does Novak win? in New York.
2: Um well, I picked against him at Wimbledon as the Back. ESPN analyst. So, I, I think that backfired. So, I got to go with him in New York. Um yeah, I think after this it, he's proven that he's the best player uh in the world by kind of a long shot. So, it's um it's going to be tough for anyone to beat him. The only thing I can think that could be a stumbling block is as you saw with Serena when she was trying to do this, the pressure builds uh, more and more and more and she um, obviously lost in the semis to Vinci. Obviously, it was uncharacteristic for her, but it, I think she really lost to the pressure of the moment, not to Vinci. So we'll see if uh, Novak can overcome that.
0: Yeah, I was there for that match. It, that was a tough one to swallow for a Serena fan. James is there. Anything different about that match in Beijing against Roger? You played him 11 times in your career. Yeah. Do you wonder
2: why it was Beijing? You know, I... <sighs> I felt like he always had another gear. Uh, When I played him, I felt like when I played well, um, he was the only guy that could absolutely step his game up even above mine because he did everything I did a little bit better is the way I thought. Um, And that match in Beijing, for some reason, I felt like I was having a little more success with more variety, not just really like pounding it to his backhand and trying to force errors that way. But I was moving him a lot more. And it seemed like it actually threw him off a little bit to his forehand wasn't firing. We've seen it recently now with him is that when he isn't playing his best, it is actually a lot of times his forehand that can uh, sort of spray. And I just think that match was one of those where his forehand started going off a little, gave me a little more confidence. And then I was more aggressive and didn't feel like, because most of the times I played him, I felt like that forehand was just a black hole. If I go to that forehand, he's going to control the point from now on. And I don't have much chance. So I was given a little more confidence with him making a couple of errors early that I can go there and still be safe and still uh, take my aggressive plays into that forehand side. And that made a huge difference.
0: I love it. I love it. All right. Well, I guess this final question here in this round, I, I, I guess I know the answer to this. You've beaten nine players that have been number one at some point in their career. You beat Roger, Roddick, Rios, Moya, Leighton, Andre, Murat, Murray, Nadal. So many. One word answer. Who was the toughest matchup for you?
2: Roger. Roger.
0: Okay. That's an easy one. All right. I thought I'd know that one. Well, (laughs) 2008, you'd have a great run in Australia. You'd make the quarters there. 2010, you had a pretty severe knee injury and missed most of the clay season. You'd continue Mm -hmm. to play while struggling with injuries, even at the 2013 U S open. And you'd play your last match on tour. Did you know that was going to be your last match, James?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, um, I knew at the beginning of the year actually that that was going to be my last year, and I always wanted to retire at the Mm -hmm. open, I I mean I had so many fond memories there that I wanted to be uh, I want to be there. say goodbye to my fans and have my family around and my friends, and so I knew that was going to be it, I hoped I would add a better run, but that was uh, i was not to be.
0: emotional i'm sure too well at least you seemed like you were at peace at least in that final match if you knew that was going to be it i mean you went out in five sets and your whole family's there so you know if you're going to go out that's the way and you were amazing in your career so i i love that that was your final tournament there but lucky for us we get to see you now on espn james you're so great i love hearing your commentary i know fans feel the same are you having fun over there
2: yeah it's been great um i've just learned a lot uh as a commentator and it's something that I see now and I appreciate a lot more when people are good at it because I know that when I started, I was not very good and I had a lot to learn. And, um, the people that can seamlessly go from playing career into, um, into broadcasting, um, a guy like Tony Romo, just incredible, how good he is at his job and doing it and people, and the biggest thing is some people can make it seem easy. And then for the rest of us that go into it, know that it's not easy. So, It's but it's been fun. And one of the best things is you you, again, you're an individual sport, You're an individual on the on the desk or in the studio, but you're a part of a team. The producers play such a big role in setting you up and how they're doing it and what they're saying in your ear and your whoever you're commentating with uh, makes such a big difference as as you have that uh, sort of give and and take got that. You've got that banter and the timing of it all. Tennis, I think, is a very difficult sport to commentate on because of the timing and because of, you know, some players play quickly. I probably would have hated to commentate on my matches because I was playing so fast that they give the commentator no time in between a point. To, yeah, to Pam,
0: Pam Shriver hated commentating your matches
2: too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we joked about that a few times in the green room. But yeah, so it's, um, it's, it, but it's been fun for, for me to learn a lot. And, and I've been lucky to to work with some great people.
0: Yeah, you have a great team there, Renee and Chris and Mary Jo and Pam also amazing. You have a really, really fun team. Yeah. I'm assuming there's a blooper role too. But we can, you know, we'll talk about the blooper reel another day, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sure a I ever,
0: do you ever think about coaching at all, James? Is that something that's in this part? I mean, obviously, you, you have a family, you're pretty settled, you're
2: So I've I've thought about it, but I would never at this point in my life, I would not do it um, just because I think to be a successful coach, you need to be on tour with them and and with your player 25 to 30 weeks out of the year, probably minimum. And I'm not prepared to do that right now. My kids are nine and seven. I'm not leaving for 30 weeks again. Once I retired, that life was done. I've offered to have players if they ever want, you know, a week here and there to come to San Diego where I am and I'm happy to give them as much of my day as I possibly can and work with them. And Francis has taken me up on that before. Chris Eubanks has taken me up on that. They've come here for a couple of weeks at a time and I'm happy to help in that regard. But then my next step is to help them find a full-time coach, someone yeah. that can actually go with them and be their day-to-day presence. So I, I could see it if, you know, maybe 10 years from now when my kids uh, don't want to be around me and are cool living on their own, that, um, that then I could possibly think about it. But right now, definitely not.
0: Always being helpful. That's how we're going to end today. Well, you're such an amazing career. Honestly, you inspired so many people and you carried yourself so well in your career. I love getting to know you today. Uh, The winner of today is neither of you. You're both tied. So we're going to just leave it. My first tie ever we've ever had. We'll leave it at brotherly love today. Uh, Man, I love it. We always wrap up every show, James, with a last question from one of your biggest fans. All right. And we're going to go to Manchester, England for Oliver Bird. He writes, we see racism still to this day as a factor in professional tennis from Arthur Ashe, all the way to Serena Williams and the generations in between. Did you feel you were a victim of racism on tour? If so, was it more the media and fans or did fellow players have a hand in it as well?
2: Yeah, <laughs> just a fun one to end with. Yeah. Um, I mean, guess I could definitely go on for hours about that probably, but I do think there's still racism out there. There's still bigotry. Um, I think you saw, I mean, Talked to Brian Behaley, who came out after his career and didn't feel as comfortable in the locker room before that. And that's something that should be addressed on tour and has, there's attempts to address that. Um, but for a black player in a sport that has been predominantly white, you see what happens with Serena and Venus. You see the difference in media coverage. You see the players' um, reactions towards them. And yeah, there definitely, there's microaggressions. There's time where it's not, uh, it doesn't seem fair. There's times you wonder out there, before the Hawkeye systems, you wonder, am I getting a fair shake? Uh, are the umpires the same? You know, you you just wonder a lot of those things. And then there are the obvious ones, the you know, the incident I had with Leighton Hewitt, where you hear you're just coming in the locker room, and on the other side of the locker room, you're hearing the N word being said. And so there's there's those kind of things that go on, for sure. But you try to hope and you try to think that things have gotten better from the days of Arthur Ashe, because I for me to complain about what happened to me. Uh, in my opinion at times would cheapen what mal washington went to that went through and would cheapen what arthur Ashe went through what althea gibson went through because i know they made it so that it was easier for me i still have to speak up though because i want it to be easier for francis to go through the next thing for for coco goff for for those uh to be on tour and to not have as much racism out there as many people um seeing them as different A- and enough of the times when i heard you're the first since arthur Ashe to do this and as many times as francis is hearing Uh, you're the first since James, first since Mal to do this, Uh, you want to normalize those as much as possible to say, I'm just an American doing this, not I'm the first African American to do this. And so you have to keep trying and you keep moving forward with that. But um, yeah, there are are definitely incidents out there. Your newest book, Ways of Grace
0: is a beautiful catalog of stories that share how sports has brought people together, gay, black, white, highly recommend to everybody. It was was amazing. Well guys, I hate to end on that such somber note. I mean, there is, there's a lot of optimism in what you said. So I appreciate that. You know, hopefully we do see an active male gay tennis player come out. You have a gay brother yeah. and I'm sure, I mean, I love this relationship today. You know, hopefully yeah. we do see the new generations of Coco really have an easier time because it's important to talk about. And I appreciate you talking. Yeah. About
2: it. Well, let's, let's end on a positive note then. So I got a story to tell cause um, I know Chris didn't get to talk that much today, but I got to tell a story about let's him. Do it. Come might, on. He might not even remember it, but, I think I got a sportsmanship award. I got a few sportsmanship awards on on tour, and uh, I, I got to give credit to, to Chris for being part of the reason that I my sportsmanship got so much better. He he can tell a million stories about me being a brat when I was a kid, but I don't know if he remembers that when we were hitting on court five at the tennis club of Trumbull, I was about fourteen years old maybe, and he was beating me, and I was being a complete punk, and I was you know, whining and throwing my racket and getting upset, and he just pulled me up to the net and because I respected him so much and still do respect him so much. He told me I was being a punk and he said, you're just being a brat. And I had heard that plenty of times from other people, but when you hear it from someone you respect like that, it sinks in. And so that was one of the, the biggest factors in getting my attitude better. I mean, my dad helped a ton, my coach helped a ton, but Chris being honest with me made a big difference because I did not want to disappoint him. And as much as he probably didn't realize the, you know, Such a short encounter or so those words meant such a difference to to me they did and I appreciate the fact that he he took the time to do that because. He could have just walked off the court not hit with me and he had no reason to still be out there with me because it wasn't helping him at all except it, it made a big difference for me. So uh, let's, let's end on a positive note. I love
0: note. it. Well, I have all the feels today. We brought in full circle. What a fun hour, guys. I want to thank my guests for joining us today. I had such a great time with you both, James and Chris. Chris, it was so good to see you again. I hope we can play doubles one day, maybe. I'll get you out of <laughs> retirement. I think you're a GLTA legend. I said it then, I'll say it today. You absolutely are. Thanks for helping setting this up today. All right. You can follow our guest, James Blake, on Facebook at James Blake Tennis or on Twitter at JR Blake. You can also visit www.jamesblaketennis.com for a link to his foundation, his books, and a great archive of everything and anything James Blake. Maybe that even that shirtless photo from you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I, I might have had remove I
2: don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> James, thank you so much. It was an honor. I hope you had a good time walking down memory lane today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Take care. I'd love your support on Instagram at fantastic tennis pod. Shoot me a
0: DM at John Garica. Let me know who you'd like to hear on an upcoming show. And if you're on Apple podcasts, we'd love to hear a fantastic review of today's show as well. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at fan tennis pod. My name is John Garica and thank you for listening. This has been fantastic.